Welcome to the Psych Central Show, where each episode presents an in-depth look at issues from the field of psychology and mental health, with host Gabe Howard and co-host Vincent M. Wales. Hello, everyone, and welcome to this week's episode of the Psych Central Show podcast. My name is Gabe Howard, and with me, as always, is Vincent M. Wales. Before we get started, I want to tell you how to interact with Vince and I. It's really, really easy. You can suggest topics, you can comment on the show, and you can be the first to get updates, and all you have to do is use Facebook, which, let's be honest, you're already doing anyways. Just join our super secretive Facebook group, so secretive, we're advertising it, over at psychcentral.com slash fbshow. Again, that's psychcentral.com slash fbshow. Let's go ahead and get started. Vince, we have a great guest with us. Would you like to do the honors of introducing her? Sure, but since when do you call me Vince? That's, that's rare. It is a rare occurrence, but I have uh, decided to respect your professional name <laughs> and uh, start calling you uh, Vince on the show. This will last about two seconds. Probably, yes. Take it away, Vin. <laughs> okay. With us today is Dr. Ellen Hendrickson. She is a clinical psychologist on the faculty at the Center for Anxiety and Related Disorders at Boston University. So as you might guess, we're here to talk about anxiety. Welcome to the show, Dr. Hendrickson. Thank you so much. I'm excited to be here. We want to start out and jump in with, with kind of an easy question, but what is the difference between social anxiety and being shy? So in general, Social anxiety and shyness are the same thing. So shyness is just a you know everyday colloquial way of saying social anxiety. As for introversion, that's actually really different. So a lot of people think that shyness and introversion are you know they're the same thing or kind of tomato tomato, but I like to say they're really more like apple and orange because introversion is a personality trait. And that's about where you get your energy. So introverts recharge and gain energy by being in solitude or one-on-one or in like small groups of people they know well. Whereas extroverts get their energy from people. So extroverts often have never met a stranger, like love meeting new people, like are really energized by a group or, or, or sometimes even a crowd. But social anxiety is about fear. It's worry over what I call the reveal. So I'll go on a little tangent about what social anxiety is. And so it it is basically self-consciousness on steroids. It's this perception, and I, I emphasize perception, that there's something embarrassing or deficient about us that unless we work hard to conceal or to hide it, it will be revealed and therefore will be judged or rejected. And so that, that is social anxiety in a nutshell. And it can happen to introverts or extroverts. So, for example, it's, it, it might be odd to think about being a socially anxious extrovert, but it actually happens a lot. The other day I was talking to this lovely man who is a teacher and a stand-up comic. So he loves being in front of people, but he's also afraid that they're judging him. So it's, it's both. He gets his energy from people but is, is worried that they might not want him there. So you would just describe a, me to a T. Yeah. Okay, well, there you, you go. So, you, they, they should rename this Gabe Howard syndrome. You know, obviously, <laughs> I, I, I don't mind being in front of people. I, I'm the host of a podcast. I'm a speaker. You, you kind of hit the nail on the head there. Uh, but I do have, you know, panic attacks or anxiety. And obviously, 
having any sort of cre creative spirit in my body, I believe that everybody hates me. Uh, I, I think that's one of the uh, telltale signs of creativity. Uh, I must put it out into the world and nobody likes it. I wanted to get back to the um, introvert versus social anxiety because I am, unlike Gabe, I am a, I'm a classic introvert. And what I've noticed as I've gotten a little older is that, well, I'm not sure if it's becoming worse or if I am developing a bit of social anxiety. As you say, I do recharge myself when I'm not around other people. But lately, uh -huh. it just seems that um, crowds of people, even when they're people that I know, it just seems that it drains me more. And I sometimes avoid those situations. I'll just just stay home. That's the magic word. Yes. So avoid. And I think a nice distinction is that so introversion is your way. So like that's how you're wired. You like to recharge by being I, I'm an introvert as well. So I, I can totally relate. So I recharge, you recharge by, you know, being in solitude or you know, being with a few close people. Mm -hmm. Okay. So introversion is your way but social anxiety might get in your way. And so the way to know if it's social anxiety is if there's avoidance happening, if we're retreating from the world, not because it makes us feel good, but because it makes us feel less anxious or less bad. And if there are people you're avoiding, or for, like for me, if there are situations I'm avoiding um, because I'm anxious about them, I'd say that the, 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 the remedy is to, to try to push ourselves a little bit out of our comfort zone because that's, that's where the, the learning happens. Like social anxiety tells us two fundamental lies. One is that whatever the worst case scenario that our imaginations can come up with is a foregone conclusion. That the, like, so the worst will definitely happen. People will laugh at us. We're going to spill wine on somebody. We're going to uh, show up and people will think we're boring. And so our anticipatory anxiety is always much stronger than anything that can actually happen. The second lie that social anxiety tells us is that we can't handle it, that we can't handle the little slings and arrows and blips and bloops that life throws at us. And so... Then when we avoid, we don't get the opportunity to learn that both those things are lies, that, you know, the worst case scenario doesn't usually happen. Most people are nice and friendly and helpful and that we can handle, you know, whatever social situations, whatever life dishes out. I really appreciate the answer to that. And I'm still, I'm still struggling understanding if somebody is introverted and they don't get their energy from other people, I, I, I certainly understand that. As an extrovert, I love to be around people. That is how I recharge my battery. So I, I understand the, you know, the, the opposite of that, which is introversion. But if somebody's an introvert and they don't want to be around people, how is that a disorder? Like when does it become a disorder or when does it just become they're an introvert and they like to be alone? So a nice analogy I, I think we can all relate to is, so imagine that you are looking in a mirror and you perceive some sort of flaw. Like maybe we have a zit, maybe we're having a bad hair day, maybe we think our butt looks big in these pants, and there follows this urge to hide or to conceal. Like if we're out in public and we think people are looking at us and you know seeing this perceived flaw, we feel really self-conscious. So that, that feeling 
is the pretty much the exact same feeling we get when we're feeling socially anxious, except instead of for something on the outside, instead of for our external self, it's the same feeling for our internal self. There might be a sense that we are boring or we have no personality or we're incompetent or you know, some other just perceived flaw that if revealed, if it becomes obvious to everyone, will result in us getting judged. And that's the core fear of social anxiety. And so introversion is just you know, how, how we're wired and how we get our energy. That's not something that needs to be challenged. Whereas with social anxiety, that's a fear that's based on a flawed perception. And that, luckily, can be changed. And there is a lot of hope for all of us who have or have lived with social anxiety. I mean, if, you, if we ask people, are you shy? 40% of people will say yes. That's a lot of people. What's more, if we change the question and say, have you ever been shy? Like, were you shy as a child? Were you awkward as a teenager? 80% of people will say yes. So that's pretty much everybody can relate. Everybody has their insecurities. So that said, there are also millions of people, so 13% of us, in fact, for whom social anxiety at some point in life gets in the way of living their life. But like I said, you know, there's good news. No matter where you fall on the continuum, there's hope and there are really great ways to stop letting you know, fear get the best of you and to build confidence and to be the, the self that one is without fear. And that's, that's what I call your, your true self. That is a good analogy, yeah. So what are some of those tools? How do, how do we stop having that affect us so badly? Sure. So, I mean, there's, there's a lot of things to do in the moment. I mean, I can, I can walk us through a few concrete things to do. One is that when, when we're feeling socially anxious, when that, you know, that anxiety starts to rise, we start to feel self-conscious, we often turn our attention inside. We ask ourselves, how is this going? Oh, she, you know, she just shifted in her seat. That must mean that she's bored. Oh, like, can they see that I'm sweating? I hope they don't see my hand shaking. We often will we'll monitor what's happening with our thoughts. We'll monitor our, our you know, physical shenanigans, what's going on with our body. We'll read into things and, and start to try to, to do impression management and, and try to work really hard to present a certain kind of self and so our attention is really focused inward. So for example, I once worked with a guy named Diego, and he was a medical student who was, um, had just started working in the hospital. He had finished the first two years of med school where it's mostly classes and anatomy lab where you work on dead people. And he is now in the hospital interacting with live people. And so he wanted nothing more than to come across as being a good doctor and smart and competent. But as a result, what he would do is he would turn his attention inward and would monitor like what he was saying and would think about what he was going to say to make sure it sounded like sufficiently impressive before he said it. And as a result, he actually missed what was going on outside. So he missed what, what patients were trying to say to him. He, he missed uh, the instructions and the, the, the communications of like the people who were working with him, the residents and the attendings. So when he got his evaluations back, it said that he seemed preoccupied and distracted, which was exactly the opposite of what he wanted. And so he, he learned to turn his attention outward. And instead of monitoring and doing impression management, he would listen to what 
the patients and the attendings were saying. He would look consciously like at their faces and at the situation. And, and so when he turned his attention in, inside out, that freed up a lot of bandwidth. Like he wasn't doing all this monitoring. And with all that freed up bandwidth, he was able to let his normal, natural self fill in the gaps. And so he came across as much more authentic. He was able to react in the moment. And that, that turning of attention is, uh, is really important. So that's, that's one concrete thing to do. An exercise I like to give people to try out just to test the difference between these two types of attention is to challenge people to have two different conversations. So this can be with a coworker or a cashier at the grocery store. And so in, in the first conversation, uh, to talk and to focus internally, to focus on you, you, you. And then in the second conversation with somebody else, to focus on them, them, them. To like look at their face, listen to what they're saying, attune into, into, into them. And then after you've had the two conversations, to ask yourself, like, which was more productive, which was more pleasant, which did I enjoy more? And almost inevitably, people enjoy the one where they focused outside, where they focused on them, them, them. And so that's, that's a nice concrete tool to use to try to combat social anxiety in the moment. This episode is sponsored by BetterHelp.com. Secure, convenient, and affordable online counseling. All counselors are licensed, accredited professionals. Anything you share is confidential. Schedule secure video or phone sessions, plus chat and text with your therapist whenever you feel it's needed. A month of online therapy often costs less than a single traditional face-to-face -face session. Go to BetterHelp.com forward slash Psych Central and experience seven days of free therapy to see if online counseling is right for you. BetterHelp.com forward slash Psych Central. Ellen, do you have social anxiety? Yes. And at the same time, I know that as I've gone through life as decades and you know, clinical psychology study have, have gone by, I have become less and less socially anxious. And I think it's important to note that I still have my moments. Like I really don't like being on camera. I am not a fan of you know, talking to authority figures. I have to psych myself up. But I can do those things. I think through practice, and realizing that what the socially anxious part of my brain is telling me is not like the worst case scenario is not necessarily going to happen, that like I can do these things, even if I get anxious, it doesn't own me. And I know that the situation is temporary, that if I stick with it, it gets better, and that I am strong and can get through this. And so, yes, while social anxiety has definitely got in the way of my life in the past, it's certainly better now. Alan, I'm not surprised to hear that as your life has, has moved on, social anxiety has become less of a problem for you. Because for one thing, you're, you're very well educated about how anxiety works. I mean, you, you have a, a PhD in the subject for, I mean, right? You, you, you have a PhD in the subject. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yep, and you wrote the proverbial book on the subject. Uh, you have a book coming out called How to Be Yourself, Quiet Your Inner Critic, and Rise Above Social Anxiety. Uh, obviously, we don't want to go over the entire book on a 30-minute on a show, but what is the book about, and how will it help someone who reads it? So this is the book that I wish I had had when I was 20. So these are all really concrete tools in order to, to live your life and face down social anxiety. And it's the things that I wish I had known. Like, I wish I had known that how I feel 
is not how I look. I wish I had known that the very things I was doing to try to make myself feel better, which are called safety behaviors, like avoid eye contact or like be overly nice so people would like me, but those things were just keeping me anxious. You know, I wish I had known that my, you know, my perfectionism, like thinking I had to come across as witty or smart all the time, you know, was making me not say anything. And so all the tools in the book are the things that I wish I had known. I like, do you remember the hair club for men from the eighties? I so, do. Like I, yeah. I like, yeah. So I, I like to say like, I'm, I'm not just the author of how to be yourself. I'm also a client. So I still, you know, I, I follow the advice in the book when socially anxious moments strike. And again, it's important to emphasize that after learning all these tools and like, and, you know, writing a book about it, it's not that anxiety never strikes me. It's that it doesn't own me anymore. And so I still have my challenges, but it doesn't get in the way of you know, living the life that I would like to live, which is pretty great. In preparation for this show, I like to get on Amazon and look to see what people are saying about the book. Now, your book isn't out yet, so there's no reviews, but there was a, a blurb on Amazon that, that sort of, uh, it, it, it piqued my interest. And I want to read it to you and kind of get some comments on it. It says, if you get nervous in social situations, meeting your partner's friends, public speaking, standing awkwardly in the elevator with your boss, you've probably been told, just be yourself. But that's easier said than done, especially if you're prone to social anxiety. I think a lot of those things, a lot of people can really relate to. I have certainly stood in an elevator nervous. Of course, I also have social anxiety. So the things that you are describing are, are pretty common things that people deal with. And that makes me think that this is really relatable to, well, really almost anyone. Absolutely. I think everybody can relate. Everybody has you know, their insecurities. I think the, the only people who you know, maybe can't relate are the people for whom having confidence is, is kind of a problem, like the narcissists or the psychopaths. Like the, there was a really cool um, fMRI study done that I talk about in the book that showed that uh, psychopaths and folks who are socially anxious have opposite patterns in their, in their brains. And so I think while a lot of people who do live with social anxiety wish, I wish I could just like have the complete opposite of this, that's actually not, not, not what we're going for either. Also, social anxiety is a, a package deal and that it can come bundled with, with some real strengths like high standards or empathy or being pro-social, like meaning being like helpful and altruistic. We're often good listeners or conscientious. Like we work hard to get along with a lot of different people in, in an increasingly diverse world. You know, that's really important. And I, I love working with clients with social anxiety because I get to help them see how awesome they really are. And that's, that's just, I, I love doing that. And so all these moments, all these anxious, insecure moments are absolutely relatable because everybody feels like that at some time. What I get told a lot is that people will tell me, you know, I wish I could like retreat from the world and like kind of work on myself and maybe read some books and become confident. And then I could go out and I could live my life. And they say, I want to be less anxious so I can live my life. And I say, that's awesome. Can we reverse that? Can we have you live your life in order to be less anxious? And so in order to, to rise above social anxiety, I think it's really important to, to stretch and grow and to try to, to, to put ourselves in situations that make us a little bit anxious. And then when we see that, 
you know, our, our anxiety, our worst case scenario doesn't happen and that we actually can do okay. And we have experience under our belt that will propel us into the next experience. A nice analogy can be that of, of mood and action. Like we often think we have to feel like doing something before we do it. Like we have to, we think we have to feel like going to the gym before we go work out. We think we have to feel inspired before we sit down and write. But really, it's the opposite. If we lace up our shoes and go to the gym, our mood catches up. Like, oh, I'm glad I did this. Or if we sit down and try to start pounding out the words, then inspiration will strike. And it's the same thing with confidence. So rather than you know, retreating from the world and trying to get confidence, we gain confidence by, by doing things and getting that experience, getting that evidence that we are capable and that people are friendly. Yep. And it's like you're speaking right to me. Not going to <laughs> comment on the gym thing because, you know, but yeah, sure. I, uh, I went through years of feelings that I needed to be inspired to sit down and, and work on one of my books. And Oh, so did I. I sure. I, I'm ashamed to say how long it took me to get past that. Once I did, of course, well, my productivity increased. I became more confident in my abilities and yada, 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 just like you'd expect. One of the things that you mentioned earlier when you were talking about the different symptoms of social anxiety was one that really hit me, and that is avoiding eye contact. I realized that I have been horrible about that pretty much my entire life, I think. And every time I'm in a situation, I, I do notice it. Like, I'm not looking mm -hmm. in their eyes again. I don't know how to stop it. I mean, it's it takes a really, really hard effort for me to maintain eye contact for any kind of length of time. And I'm just, I'm certain that I'm sending bad messages that way. Well, I think that's, okay, so that's definitely super relatable. I think that's probably the, the, the number one thing that folks who live with social anxiety have trouble with. I definitely have trouble with that. And I think something that is helpful for me, at least, is to, to, to look, to consciously look at faces when they're not looking back at me. So for example, like if I'm on the bus or at the mall or at my kid's playground, I, I will I'll consciously try to, to do the, you know, the turn your attention inside out thing and look around and look at faces. And it grounds me and just gets me used to looking at faces. There was this really interesting study done by Dr. Mike Rink, who's a psychologist in the Netherlands. And he created this program where all these different faces would flash across the computer screen. And he trained people with social anxiety to, to use a joystick to pull the faces towards them. Like if they would pull on the joystick, the, the face would zoom in as if it was getting closer. And then he would train some other people to push the faces away with the joystick. And so if they pushed away, then the, the face would get smaller and disappear. And they discovered that the people who they trained to pull the faces towards them Later, they had everybody give a short speech, you know, so public speaking is definitely something that, that, is, that makes people feel socially anxious, and that the people who were trained to pull the faces toward them did better on the speech. Uh, they, they, were, they, they felt more confident. They felt used to having faces, you know, like, come toward them and look at them. So, so while, you know, we can't walk around the world with the joystick, all that would be super cool, but we can acclimate ourselves to faces. And, and try to get used to that. Then also, speaking to your point, if it's hard to make eye contact for any length of time, 
I think that's okay. You don't have to drill into somebody's eyeballs, you know, like a, like you're having a stare down. It's actually totally okay to connect, look away, connect, look away. And I think that that, I mean, I don't want to give any rules because I think then that becomes like something we try to hold in our head. And then we, we again, turn our attention inward to try to follow the rule, but like somewhere between one third and two thirds of the time, anywhere in there is, is totally totally acceptable more than that it gets a little weird and then like less less than that it feels a little disconnected so you don't have to you know stare at them but just you know trying to up it a little and get used to faces might be something that that will that can be your your challenge okay well as a writer i i do study people when i'm out and about the problem Mm -hmm. of course with looking at their faces is that i always get caught and well then i'm a creeper (laughs) yeah (laughs) <laughs> I think this is probably a difference between looking at a stranger who you aren't engaged in a conversation with and looking at somebody that you are engaged in a conversation with. Although there's probably much to say on the subject of why making eye contact with a stranger is something that people perceive as, you know, negative or creepy or we could probably do a whole show on why is making eye contact with a stranger threatening? Um, because many people do feel that it is. Uh, we actually are, are sort of somewhat trained to keep our gaze away. Uh, especially if it's from somebody, you know, a member of the opposite sex or somebody younger or somebody of a higher mm, authority mm-hmm. figure. I, I think some of our social anxiety is because we have weird rules that people don't fully understand and we're afraid that we will not follow one of those rules in any given situation. I, I think especially as you move through the stages. When I first joined the workforce, I was, I was very confused about what the rules were because nobody taught them to me. So, you know, here I am 20 years old. I'm in a workforce with a lot of people much older than me, which is the first time that it happened. And nobody told me the rules. Uh, I started calling all of my coworkers Mr. This, you know, Mr. or Mrs. because they were older than me. And that's what my parents taught me to do. And that, that kind of set me back for a while because then I was looked at like a child because I was behaving like one. How much of just misunderstanding the situation or not being prepared for a situation plays into our anxiety? As people become more comfortable in a situation, do they have less social anxiety? Yes. I mean, definitely as as we become more comfortable, yeah, our social anxiety goes down. So there's a term that I mentioned before called safety behaviors. Safety behaviors are, are the things that we do in the moment to artificially tamp down our anxiety, but they're often the things that keep us mired. There's a great story that, that illustrates safety behaviors. For the book, I interviewed this man named Jia Zhang, and he came to the U.S. from China when he was 16 and wanted to be the next Bill Gates. He was you know, really excited to, you know, had big dreams. And so when he was 30, he said, okay, it's now or never. And he quit his corporate job and founded a startup. And he got some funding for the startup. But the last minute, this funder bailed. And he was left with um, like four employees and a family to support and no income. So he knew he had to cast around for more funding, but he was really afraid of getting rejected. So he decided to do this project called 100 Days of Rejection. And he, every day for 100 days, he tried to get rejected. And so his, his attempt, the first two days, I think, really illustrates safety behaviors. So the first day, he decided to try to get rejected by asking the security guard in his building if he could borrow $100. He's really anxious as he goes up to the guy, and he zooms in and, like, spits out his words really fast. Excuse me, do you think I could borrow $100 from you? 
And the security guard looks up and you know, says, no, but then says, why? And, but all, all Ja hears is the no. And he says, oh, no, okay, sorry. And then he like runs away. And so there the safety behavior that he used was speed. So he was trying to get things over with so he could stop feeling so uncomfortable. But then he realized that the guy had said why, and that was actually an offer to extend the conversation. He wanted to know more, but all, all he heard was no, and then he ran away. Then the second day, he decides, that, okay, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do this differently. And so he is at a burger joint and sees a free refill sign on the soda machine, and that gives him an idea. And so he goes up to the counter, but this time he doesn't use any safety behaviors. He squares the shoulders, he looks the guy in the eye, he asks in a normal tone of voice, hey, this bacon cheeseburger I had was really good. Can I get a burger refill? And the, the cashier you know, says, says no, which you know, for him was a success because he's trying to get rejected. And he, he smiles and you know, politely says, okay, thanks very much. I really appreciate it. I'd like the place even better if you had burger refills. And then he goes on his way. And he realized that it's not necessarily what you're asking. Like he, he asked in a way that was totally reasonable, even if the content of what he was asking for was not reasonable. He, he realized that you get to set the tone. And if you can project an image of confidence, that that actually creates two feedback loops. It creates a feedback loop to you. It's kind of like how power posing works. If you stand in a way that is confident, it, it makes you feel more confident, but also it, it creates this feedback loop for other people. And if you ask in a way that's respectful and reasonable, they usually respond in kind. So I think that the things we do to, to try to keep from like seeming like a creeper or the, the things we do that when we feel like we're being annoying or burdensome or incompetent or whatever, the things that social anxiety tells us to do, these behaviors actually get in our way, like not making eye contact or scrolling through our phone when we're in a group or looking at the floor or standing on the edge of a group rather than moving in. These are the things that we do to keep ourselves from feeling anxious, but in fact, they keep us mired in social anxiety. Kind of like the idea of a burger refill, though. They have fry refills that would be at that one awesome. restaurant. Free, really? free french fries? Yeah, red robin, yum. Oh, that's right. They do. <laughs> <laughs> Ellen, thank you so much. The time always flies by, especially when we're talking about, you know, things that, that are of a lot of interest to Vin and me. As somebody who lives with anxiety, has had panic attacks and, and you know, it's Absolutely. crippling uh, in, in my life. And I'm an extrovert. So, you know, not, not only... Oh, yeah panic attacks painful and anxiety, you know, just just uncomfortable, but it also prevents me from recharging. So this has been very, very enlightening. We look forward to the book coming out and where can we find you? What's your website? Sure. So you can always learn more at ellenhendrickson.com and there are a number of free resources for social anxiety there. Um, and I also have a podcast called The Savvy Psychologist, and you can find that wherever you like to get your podcast. Okay, awesome. As Gabe said, it was great having you, very informative, and I appreciate you being on the show. Thank you, everyone, for tuning in. Remember, you can get one free week of convenient, affordable, private online counseling anytime, anywhere by visiting betterhelp.com slash psychcentral. See you next week. 
Thank you for listening to the Psych Central Show. Please rate, review, and subscribe on iTunes or wherever you found this podcast. We encourage you to share our show on social media and with friends and family. Previous episodes can be found at psychcentral.com slash show. Psychcentral.com is the Internet's oldest and largest independent mental health website. Psych Central is overseen by Dr. John Grohall, a mental health expert and one of the pioneering leaders in online mental health. Our host, Gabe Howard, is an award-winning writer and speaker who travels nationally. You can find more information on Gabe at GabeHoward.com. Our co-host, Vincent M. Wales, is a trained suicide prevention crisis counselor and author of several award-winning speculative fiction novels. You can learn more about Vincent at VincentMWales.com. If you have feedback about the show, please email talkback at psychcentral.com. There are few words more misunderstood and misused than OCD. Imagine having unwanted thoughts stuck in your head all day no matter how hard you try to make them go away, and then having to pretend that everything is okay despite having to feel crippled inside. That's OCD. One in 40 people suffer from it globally, but there's hope. If you have OCD and need help, you can get better with specialized treatment. NoCD offers effective, affordable, and convenient treatment for OCD and is covered by many major insurance plans. Go to NoCD.com to learn more. That's NoCD.com.